Lakuta Sikha is volume 17, the fourth Sikha on Parshat Kedoshim. The title is When a Mitzvah Carries Over. I do want to preface by saying that this is an extremely complicated halachic Talmudic exploration of the category for a child obligation in mitzvot. The Torah teaches us of a unique case called Shifcha Harufa. Literally, it means a maid designated to a man in marriage, in which a non-Jewish woman, um, just to understand that upon a non-Jewish woman maid being freed, she becomes a full-fledged Jew. So we're talking about a non-Jewish woman is partly handmade and partly a free woman. For example, a woman who is owned by two partners and one partner freed her while the other didn't. Now, if this woman is betrothed to a man, and that's talking about a Hebrew slave who is permitted to marry a Gentile maid who had a carnal relationship with a Jewish man. The woman receives lashes, but not death being that she is not completely free and hence her marriage is not fully binding, so she's not a married woman, therefore there is no death penalty. The male who was involved in this forbidden relationship must bring a guilt offering. Now, Maimonides, in his Laws of Forbidden Relationships in Chapter 13, Law 17, rules when a a youth nine years old an age in which the youth is on one hand a minor and on the other hand capable of having a carnal relationship. So when a youth nine years old engages in relations with a shivcha harufa, she is given lashes and he is required to bring a sacrifice. Why? For by a shivcha harufa, the man is not liable to bring a sacrifice until she is liable for lashes, as implied by the verse. The verse says, there shall be an inquiry, which, me, which means to us, if there shall be an inquiry and she receives lashes. The verse goes on to say, and he shall bring his guilt offering, which to us means that only then, If she receives lashes, does he bring his guilt offering? Now, Rabbi Avram ben David, known as the Rivid, he states on this, quote, This is a mistake, for we do not find that a minor is subject to punishment, and this sacrifice is of the punishment for this sin. And then the Rivid goes on to rule his own ruling, Quote, and she too is acquitted, for they, the maid and the male, are likened one to another. Meaning that when the male is acquitted because he's a minor from punishment, so is the maid. And then the rivet concludes with, and so it is brought in the Talmud Tractacresis. Note, Maimonides' understanding of the likened between the maid, there shall be an inquiry, and the minor male, and he shall bring his guilt offering, being that he has to bring a guilt offering because she receives lashes. That's how Maimonides learns the likening between the two. This is in accordance with the Medrash called Torah Kohanim. 
The Ravid's understanding of the likened between the maid and the minor being that she is acquitted from lashes because he is acquitted from the guilt offering is in accordance with the Talmud. Now, let's return back to our conversation. Commentaries need to explain how Maimonides can have a minor obligated to bring a guilt offering. So we have three different commentaries that give different answers. The Magid Mishnah, he says that Maimonides' opinion is it all depends upon her if she be punishable. However, he doesn't need to be punishable in order to be punished. Problem with this is how can it all depends upon her have a minor punished? Then there's the Rabvaz. Maimonides' opinion is that the guilt offering is for an atonement and not a punishment. Here too we have a question. Why would it be only by the Shivcha Harufa that the minor is obligated to bring an atonement and not by any other sin? And then there's a third commentary, the Lechem Mishnah, and he says, Maimonides' opinion is in accordance with the Torah Kohanim. In other words, it's not a question on the Maimonides. However, for us, the question now is on the Torah Kohanim. Why does the Torah Kohanim specifically extrapolate only by the Shivcha Harufa that a minor is punishable and not by any other forbidden relationship? We will need to explore the minor's obligation in certain mitzvot as mentioned by Maimonides. Number one, the Paschal offering. If a minor becomes an adult between the first Passover and a month later, there's the second Passover. If he became an adult in between the two, he is obligated to bring the Paschal sacrifice on the second Passover. However, I quote from Maimonides, if one slaughtered the first Paschal sacrifice for the sake of the minor, the minor is exempt from bringing the second sacrifice. Now on this, we have a simple question. Being a minor at the first Seder, his participation wasn't obligatory meaning it wasn't a mitzvah. Hence, how can this exempt him from, being, from bringing his obligatory mitzvah offering of the second Passover? Another case in which Maimonides speaks about a minor's obligation is concerning Torah story. And here I quote, a person who was not instructed by his father is obligated to arrange for his own instruction when he can understand. Now, the Tzemach Tzedek points out on this language, it doesn't say when he becomes an adult. It says when he can understand, even as a minor, he is obligated. And the Tzemach Tzedek points out, maybe also upon the minor, there is a biblical obligation. Just like to educate a, a child with Torah is a biblical obligation for the father. Here too is a question. How can an obligation, a biblical obligation, be placed upon a minor? Now, in order to understand this, we must first explore a far greater novelty concerning the general phenomenon of the obligation of mitzvot upon a minor. Here, I'd like to just make two quick introductions. One, one can only have his performance of a mitzvah count for another only if he too carries the same obligation. For example, one who is not obligated to make Kiddush on Shabbat cannot have their Kiddush count for one who is obligated to make Kiddush. Another point, 
Likewise, one whose obligation is rabbinical can count only for another person whose obligation is rabbinical as well, and not for one whose obligation is biblical. For example, a female's obligation to make Kiddush on Shabbat is rabbinical. Therefore, a female can have her Kiddush count for another female, but not for a male. Now, with these two introductions, let's see. There is an argument concerning a minor's mitzvot performed because of the father's obligation to educate him. Rashi and Nachmanides, their opinion is that the rabbinical obligation of education is not the minor's but the father's, and I quote, for he, the minor, is not obligated in mitzvot at all. Hence, a minor's grace after meal cannot account for an adult, even when the adult's obligation for the grace after meal is but rabbinical. But then there's the opinion of Tosvot and Ran. They say, once the minor reaches the age of education, he is so rabbinical obligated. Hence, a minor's grace after meal can account for an adult when the adult's obligation for the grace after meal is but rabbinical. Now, what does Maimonides say about this? Maimonides' ruling is, I quote, a son, a minor son, makes a blessing for his father. So we see that his opinion is that the rabbinical obligation of education is not just upon the father, but also upon the minor. Hence, because he now has a rabbinical obligation to make a blessing, hence he can make the blessing for his father when the father's obligation is only rabbinical. Now, let's go further. So, do we find Maimonides' ruling concerning, and we're going to list four different categories. Number one, tzitzit, I quote, a rabbinical obligation for every child who knows how to dress himself to wear tzitzit in order to educate him to fulfill mitzvot. That's Maimonides' ruling. Grace after meals, I again quote Maimonides, children, however, are obligated to recite grace by virtue of rabbinic decree in order to educate them to perform mitzvot. Case number three, sukkah. A minor who does not require his mother's presence is obligated to fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah according to rabbinic decree to train him in mitzvot. The fourth and last case is about the lulav, the four kinds that we use on sukkot. Here too, I quote Maimonides, a child who knows how to shake the lulav is obligated regarding the lulav by rabbinic law in order to train him in the performance of mitzvot. And here we have a question on all these four cases for, I quote to you, a Talmudic saying in Tractic Pesachim, quote, it asks a question, obligatory for children? And then there's another quote which explains why not. He is not intellectually capable, hence we cannot put any obligatory, even rabbinical, obligatory for children. Now let's understand the explanation. To understand the explanation, we're going to have three understandings, layer by layer, of how the mitzvah affects the child. A. A mitzvah doesn't only capture the action, the object, or person doing the actual mitzvah itself. Rather, it captures also the action, object, and person necessary in making the mitzvah possible. Hence, one, 
Rabbi Eliezer rules on Shabbat in concerning a mitzvah that overrules Shabbat. For example, performing a circumcision on Shabbat for a baby eight days old. That even the necessary preparations for the mitzvah overrules Shabbat. Hence, you see that the preparations receive the category of a mitzvah. Hence, they can overrule Shabbat. Another example, the Jerusalem Talmud rules that one makes a blessing over building the sukkah, even though the mitzvah is to dwell in the sukkah. So too, concerning the person who can't learn Torah, through funding others to learn Torah, it is considered as, quote, he himself learned the Torah. Another example, and so too with the mitzvah of be fruitful and multiply, which is upon the man and not the woman, being that the woman's participation in conception is passive. Nevertheless, as the woman's participation is necessary, hence by her making it possible for the husband to fulfill the mitzvah, it now becomes, I quote you from the run, her mitzvah to have children. Let's take it another step. And even a mitzvah in which the woman's par- participation is not necessary. For example, in her helping her son and husband learn Torah. A woman doesn't have an obligation to learn Torah beyond to know the laws of her obligations of mitzvot. But nevertheless, because she is helping, even though it's not necessary, but she's helping taking the child to school, making sure that the husband can study Torah, she partakes in the reward of the mitzvah. Now, that means that it's her mitzvah as well. For otherwise, how can she receive a reward for doing a non-mitzvah? So even though it's not necessary, but her helping, making it possible for her son and her husband, she now has a reward for her mitzvah. Hence, we see from all of this, even though it was not originally a mitzvah of this individual, Nevertheless, their taking part in making the mitzvah possible has it now become their mitzvah as well. Let's go to the next level, level B. Higher than this is the child's mitzvah performed in his father's educating him. In all the above cases, the preparatory, for example, building a sukkah or necessary participation, a wife's making possible to have a child, isn't the mitzvah itself being performed by the other. Hence, the blessing is for building a sukkah, la'asot, to make a sukkah. It is not the blessing which you actually do on the mitzvah of sukkah, which is leshev basukkah, to dwell in a sukkah. So too, with the funding of Torah study and the wife's participation in the conception of a child, we are speaking of an action other than the actual mitzvah, which is the actual studying or the actual birthing. Only that this action is necessary for the action of the actual mitzvah. Therefore, it receives the importance and essence of the mitzvah as well. However, in a child's mitzvah performed in his father's educating him, the father's mitzvah is to educate the son to do this very mitzvah action that the child is actually performing. Hence, the son is doing the action of the precise mitzvah beyond just making it possible for the father's mitzvah of educating his son to do this mitzvah. The child is actually doing the very action of this very mitzvah. Therefore, it now becomes the son's obligatory mitzvah as well. In other words, 
even though the original connection of the child to this mitzvah was only through his father's obligation to educate him with this mitzvah. Nevertheless, being that this happens through the child doing this actual mitzvah, this now becomes an obligatory rabbinical mitzvah of the son to the point that he is capable of performing it on behalf of an adult if the adult's obligation is rabbinical, like we said about the grace after meal. Let's take it up to a third level. Let us take it up a notch and see how this applies even for a biblical mitzvah obligation. Until now, we're talking rabbinical. Concerning the biblical obligation to be joyous on a holiday, the Talmud in Tractic Rosh Hashanah says, a woman, her husband must make her joyful, meaning that the obligation is not upon the woman, but upon her husband to make her happy. Rashi comments, how is it done? He says, in Babylon, it was done by buying the wife colored clothing. In Israel, it was done by buying the wife pressed linen clothing. Okay, now Tosfod asks a question on this Talmudic ruling. How can we say that the woman doesn't have the obligation when we find in a different Talmud, in a different tractic, Chagiga, and I quote, Who is a minor which is exempt from the mitzvah of a parent on the holiday in the temple. So there's a mitzvah that three times a year you must appear on the three holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot to the temple. So which child is exempt from this? The answer, the Talmud says, is any child who is unable to ride on his father's shoulders from Jerusalem to the temple mount. Now, Rab Zera objects and he asks a question. He says, one second, who brought him to here, to Jerusalem? You're saying that from Jerusalem to the temple, but how did he get to Jerusalem in the first place? So Abaya answered Rabbi Zera, quote, to hear as his mother is obligated in rejoicing on the festival, his mother brought him. Now, what this means is that the woman only has to come to the capital, to Jerusalem, in order to partake in her obligatory joy peace offering. There was a special offering of the holidays, which was the Korban Simcha, which must be eaten in Jerusalem. So the mother only had to come to Jerusalem, not to the temple. But what we do see from here is, clearly the Talmud just said, quote, as his mother is obligated in rejoicing on the festival. Then the Gemara goes on to, to finish its answer. From here forward, if he is, that means from Jerusalem to Temple Mount, if he is able to ascend and hold his father's hand from Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, he is obligated. And if not, he is exempt. So the question Tosas is asking is, we clearly see the words, his mother is obligated in rejoicing on the festival. Said, how did we say in the other Talmud that the tractic, that a woman, she's not obligated, her husband is obligated to make her happy. And now Tosas gives an answer, quote, her husband makes her happy because the obligation is on her husband and not on her. And this, which in the tractic Chagiga it states, his mother is obligated, is because of her husband and not because of her. Okay, what do we see from this? Hence, according to Tosfus, the husband's biblical obligation to make her happy, makes her happiness, her biblical mitzvah, to the point that the Talmud calls it, quote, his mother is obligated. Now, true, his mother is obligated only because she 
is how he fulfills his obligation biblically to go ahead and make her happy. But being that his biblical obligation is to make her happy, hence now she herself now has a biblical obligation of being happy to the point where the Talmud literally says that she has the obligation. Now, with all of this, we can return to the cases listed earlier where Maimonides speaks of a child's obligation. So let's go back to the two cases of Torah study and the Paschal sacrifice. Torah study. The only biblical obligation to educate one's son is in Torah study. For the verse says in Deuteronomy, and you shall teach them to your sons. However, educating one's child with any of the other 612 mitzvot is only a rabbinical obligation. Hence, the Tzemach comment on Maimonides, quote, maybe also upon the minor, there is a biblical obligation because the father's biblical obligation is the action that the son should learn Torah, which makes the son's action of learning Torah the son's biblical obligation, like we just said in level number three. Hence, Maimonides rules that even a minor, once he can understand, quote, a person who was not instructed by his father is obligated biblically to arrange his own instruction, even as a minor, once he can understand. We now understand why. Because like we said in category B and C, that being that the obligation of the father is that the son should study Torah, hence his studying Torah becomes his biblical obligation as well. The next case was the Paschal sacrifice. Rabbi Yosef Korkis explains, being that the Torah specifies about the Paschal sacrifice being slaughtered for the son, and his being accounted for in the eating of the sacrifice, the verse actually talks about the father also making sure that there's a Passover sacrifice for the son, a minor. Therefore, my mind rules that even if he becomes an adult after this, before the second Passover, he doesn't bring the offering as an adult on the second Passover. Now, Rabbi Yosef Rosen the Rugach of a genius, he explains that Maimonides' ruling only applies if the father accounted for his young son as an individual member of the group. However, if the father just counted the son as part of, I'm quoting now from the verse in Exodus, take a lamb for each parental home. So he didn't count his son as an individual. He just counted his son as part of his parental home. Then he did not partake in the offering as himself, but as a member of the father's parental home. So therefore the son did not fulfill his own mitzvah of the paschal sacrifice. Now that he becomes an adult after Passover before the second Passover, he now has to bring his own paschal sacrifice on the second Passover. However, if he was counted by his father as an individual, he doesn't have to. The explanation is, being that the verse biblically allows for the father to count his son individually, hence the father's biblical mitzvah of having his son accounted for in the paschal sacrifice constitutes for the son having as a minor a biblical mitzvah of the sacrifice if the father counts the son as individual. And hence, the son doesn't bring his own sacrifice as an adult on the second Passover, like we explained in level number three. 
Now we understand my man that is ruling that we're talking about a minor, nine years of age and up, who had a forbidden relationship with a shivcha charufa, with this half-made, half-free woman, being that she is biblically culpable of lashes by this action that he, the minor, did with her. Hence, this action now has biblical repercussions for the minor, and the minor biblically needs to bring an atonement, a guilt offering. However, we still have a question. Why is this only by the forbidden relationship with the Shifcha Harufa and with no other biblical forbidden relationship in which a minor is completely acquitted? Here's the answer. Maimonides writes in his Laws of Forbidden Carnal Sins, chapter 3, law 14. I quote, The law regarding relationships with this maidservant are different than all other forbidden relations in the Torah. For one, she is lashed, as it states, there shall be an inquiry, while he is liable to bring a guilt offering, not lashes, as it states, and he shall bring his guilt offering, whether he transgresses intentionally or inadvertently with a shivcha harufa, he must bring a guilt offering. Another difference unique with this relationship is when he enters into relationship with her many times, whether intentionally or unintentionally, he is required to bring only one sacrifice. She, however, is liable for lashes for every act of relations if she acted intentionally. Now here the next words. As is the law with regard to other instances which are forbidden by merely a negative commandment. What do we hear here? We're hearing here that Maimonides is clearly expressing that there is something unique about this forbidden relationship. What's unique? In which for her it is as other instances of a negative commandment, but not so for him. Now let us return to the answer of the Magad Mishnah to understand Maimonides' approach to this uniqueness. Quote, it all depends upon her. The Talmud states, and I'm going to quote to you, the entire piece from the Talmud in Tractate Crisis. In the case that the woman is flogged, the man brings an offering. The woman is not flogged, the man does not bring an offering. From where do we derive this? Rava said, as it is written, and if a man lies carnally with a woman, and she is a maidservant designated for a man, and the verse goes on to say that she's half free, half not, since until here, now Rav is continuing his logic built on this verse. Since until here, the verse is dealing with a man, so let it first write, he shall bring his guilt offering unto God, and then it should talk about how she receives lashes. Why did the merciful one first write, there shall be an inspection which talks about her receiving lashes, and at the end write, he shall bring his guilt offering unto God. Rava goes on to answer his own question. This is saying, if there will be an inspection, meaning that if the woman is to be flogged, then he shall bring his guilt offering unto God. But if there will be, if there will not be an inspection, that means she will not get lashes, then he shall not bring his guilt offering. That's what the Talmud says. Now let's understand how Maimonides sees this. Maimonides is saying that this is not just a sign of when the male brings a guilt offering and when not. But rather, this Talmud is telling you the uniqueness of this Shifcha Harufa sin. 
by every other forbidden relationship, it is a separate sin for each involved, the male and the female, and one sin is not dependent upon the others. However, by the Shifcha the Torah defines a uniqueness in which the male's sin comes in effect into effect only through the females. And hence, let's quote the words again of the Magid Mishnah, it all depends upon her. That is just unique. The Torah doesn't give a reason. It's just a unique ruling about this and only this relationship in where the male's sin is dependent upon the female's sin. When this female sin is in effect, then the male sin is in effect. Now, let's go back to our situation. The outcome for this, for the minor male, is in all other forbidden relationship in which the male sin is a sin of its own, of his own, hence a minor has no concept of sin. However, by the Shifra Harufa, being that the minor's action is the biblical sin of the Shifcha Harufa. Hence, it carries over, meaning that the, ma- the minor has a biblical obligation. Remember the third category that we said before, the third level, that when his action is the obligation of the other, hence his obligation becomes biblical. Hence, because over here, the male doesn't have his own sin. If the male would have his own sin, a minor doesn't have that. But over here, the sin of the male is that his action is the female's sin. Hence, the female's obligation carries over that now the minor needs to have a biblical obligation for an atonement, the guilt offering. Now, just in closing, the particular lesson that we learn from this whole beautiful Talmudic extrapolation is as follows. From all this, we can see the immense importance of the obligation in educating a Jewish child, especially in Torah study, in which, like we said before, in Kata and Level B, the father's biblical obligation is the action that the son should learn Torah. Hence, the action of the son's learning Torah become the son's biblical obligation, as we said, in Level C.